Welcome to The Owl Hoot, a podcast for the environmentally curious, with me, Caroline Norbury. On each episode, I chat with a guest who contributes in some way to protecting the planet on matters of climate change, sustainability, biodiversity and pollution. Here is a place where you can gain new knowledge and be inspired. Enjoy listening. Joining me on the podcast today is Jeremy Williams, an environmental and social justice writer and campaigner. He writes at the Earthbound Report, which has twice been recognised as Britain's leading green blog. Jeremy's early years in Madagascar and Kenya led to his passion for the environment, development and poverty. He studied journalism, international relations and cultural studies at university and has worked with the likes of Oxfam, WWF and the RSPB. Amongst his writing accomplishments, he's authored books for children and adults, including Climate Change is Racist. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome Jeremy to the podcast to share his story and thoughts on all things environmental. Welcome, Jeremy. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. So to start off, to get a bit of an idea of, of where you came into the environmental scene, what was it in your background that got you interested in this particular area? Sure. Well, I was born in, in the UK, in St Albans, not far from where I live now. But my family moved to Madagascar when I was very young. And so most of my childhood was uh, in Madagascar. And Madagascar in the 80s and the 90s uh, was, a, was a very poor country, economically speaking but a very rich country in terms of biodiversity and wildlife. And most people will know a little bit about Madagascar and its evolutionary history. And, you know, the fact that 80% of the, the country's plants and animals are unique to Madagascar. It's an absolute treasure house of biodiversity. So I grew up seeing this amazing wildlife and rainforests and so on, on the one side, and really grinding desperate poverty at the same time. And uh, we lived in the city, so we didn't get to go very often into the rainforest. But there were these two parallel things going on. And for me, what was really striking was, even from an early age, seeing how they connected, how people, when they were poor and they couldn't, they didn't have electricity, they needed fuel for cooking, trees were going to get cut down. And so there were these very direct risks to wildlife from poverty. And so as I grew up, I kept thinking about those sorts of things. And at the biggest possible level, how we lift people out of poverty and provide the improvements to their lives that they really need without destroying the environment at the same time. I'm wondering, because when we are children, our norm is our norm, unless we've got something to compare it against. Were your parents pointing out these contrasts or were you just literally observing it and a very curious child going, wow, this is all quite <laughs> interesting? Yeah, well, it's a bit of both, to be honest. I mean, we went there as missionaries. My parents were working as missionaries. And <clears throat> so I was raised in a Christian household where there was a real concern for, for justice and for seeking the welfare of others and those sorts of spiritual principles that we were kind of living out as a family. So they were pointed out at the same time. There were just really obvious things that you couldn't miss. So I was telling um, <laughs> an audience about this just a couple of weeks ago about a child that I used to see on my walk to school. And um, my walk to school 
we went, we walked past four or five really big houses. They were kind of um sort of gated mansions almost. And then there was an empty lot where someone presumably was planning to build one, but they hadn't built it yet. And then the school was a bit further on. And so on our watch tour, we used to go past these houses. And then in the empty lot, there was a family that were living there in a homemade kind of shack behind in the bushes, kind of out of sight. And they built themselves a house out of sticks and bits of fence panels. And they'd waterproofed it by cutting open plastic bags and sticking them over the top. And they had a little girl who was probably four or five years old. And she would come running out uh, when, when we walked past and would somehow would sometimes sort of say hello. And that family lived off the rubbish that was thrown over the wall from one of these mansions. And the servant from the mansion would come out, dump it over the wall, and then this little girl would run out to see what was in today's delivery of rubbish. And then, even though that was kind of normal, that I saw that every day going to school, you just couldn't miss the fact that this little person's life was so different from mine. And this huge gulf in privilege and how I could so easily take for granted the food on my table, the running water from the tap, the fact that, you know, we had electricity, we could switch the lights on. And there were people who we saw every day who had absolutely nothing and were living such vulnerable lives. So that made an early impression on me. I don't, don't see how it couldn't have done. And, absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a fascinating story. And as you say, mm. a stark but seeing that stark difference has got to create some sort of impression. When did yeah. when did it become something that you thought, okay, you thought about, then you thought perhaps writing about it might, when did those two things come together? Yes. Well, I've always enjoyed writing. Um, from a very early age, I wanted to be a writer. And I, I read, we didn't have television when I was little for, for a long time. And so I just read everything. I read everything in the house. And... Um, books have been a, a big part of my life and I always wanted to write and then when I was at, at high school some friends and I helped to launch a school newspaper and I got a bit of a taste for journalism and uh, went on to kind of be editor of my university paper and so on and for me it was the, the opportunity to write about things that I cared passionately about uh, just seemed really obvious to me so I went to university to study journalism and international relations as well because I wanted to be able to go back to Africa and write about the things that I've seen and make a difference through my writing. Um, I experimented with other kinds of writing as well and wrote some fiction and I did some work as a, a music journalist for a while, all sorts of other things that kind of settled on um, really focusing on explaining sustainability and its connections to poverty and development in really straightforward terms, making it understandable for people and trying to kind of fly the flag for people like that little girl who I used to see on my walk to school. I love the fact that you could, you could bring both of those interests together uh, and in a very meaningful way. So you write the, the Earthbound Report, the blog that's award-winning. How did that come about? And I know it's had a title change. So what? tell me a little bit about that as well. Yeah, well, it started off. It started off with the name um, "Make Wealth History," which was nearer to the time of "Make Poverty History," if you remember that. And um, that was the movement. I think it was in two thousand five, two thousand and six, to uh, write off third world debt, as it was being called at the time, and really make a big push towards solving extreme poverty in the world. And the observation that I had, having come from Madagascar, was that 
it's all very well to talk about how we make poverty history, but there are so many things that we do in our in the rich world that make life harder for people in poorer countries. The most important one being burning fossil fuels and contributing to climate change, which then affects people on the other side of the world and is constantly eroding attempts to lift them out of poverty. So what is the point of trying to just solve poverty if our own wealth is undermining that development as it goes? So I wanted to try and bring out that connection. And so I started writing this, this blog uh, called Make Wealth History to, as a counterpoint to that. And it was mainly just to document what I was learning myself as I was trying to understand things like climate change. It wasn't taught to me at school. Uh, it only came up briefly at university. And if you want to really understand those sorts of things, you have to go away and look, in, look into it yourself. And unfortunately, that's still the case if you look at the national curriculum. So I wanted to document what I was learning. And then it kind of grew and it found an audience. And I realized that actually it was doing quite a good job of advocacy as well. And so I kind of invested more time in that and took it a bit more seriously and upped my game as a journalist on that. And it's been rolling on ever since. I changed the name to the Earthbound Report just to because make poverty history was so far in the distance. I had readers who hadn't been hadn't been born when make poverty history was doing its thing, so <laughs> I really had to kind of change that and catch up with it. But uh, yeah, it's still going, and I still write something most days on the topics of climate change and social justice and so on. It's interesting that you've 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 had to do that title change to keep it relevant, but those issues that you talk about. And having to be curious to find out those connections, that is something that I have learned through doing the podcast is I thought I'd do an environmental podcast. And then I realized, oh, hang on a minute. There are all these other things that I had never connected to what I thought were environmental issues, which is why your particular story is interesting to me, because you brought in that poverty aspect, the wealth and the race. You've written a number of books. I'm going to come back to the Climate Change is Racist, your latest Mm. book. But one of your first books was largely on economics, and that ties in the wealth. So how did that come about? What were you trying to, what was the main message and premise of that particular book? Yes, well, you're absolutely right. The the more you look at it, the more you realise that everything's connected to everything else. And you can start off being an environmentalist and thinking about nature and trying to protect nature or uh, working on development and trying to make things better for people in poverty. But you soon realize that everything overlaps with everything else and there's all these multiple connections. And as a, the more I was thinking about this kind of thing, the more I was thinking of that, the way that economics is done at, at the biggest possible level, uh, sort of government policy, how we measure success as a country is deeply unhelpful <laughs> to this this sustainability and development kind of problem that we have because the main way that we measure success in the economy is is the economy growing and if you look at despite all our many changes of prime ministers in the last few years and their different philosophies every single one of them was completely and passionately committed to growing the economy and gordon brown said it it was his top priority david cameron said it was his top priority so Theresa may said it boris johnson there's, there's no division there between left and right. Everyone agrees that economic growth is you know, this all-important thing. And yet, GDP, as we measure economic growth through GDP, doesn't tell us anything about who gets that growth and what the price, what price was paid for that growth. So 
you're talking to me with a, a beautiful background of a forest uh, in the image behind you there. That forest, if it was you know real and right here in front of us, uh, is worth nothing unless we chop it down. And now it's worth something as timber, and we can sell that timber. Now the, the timber that we sell goes straight onto the GDP accounts, and we say, hooray, growth has happened. And no one counts the trees that are gone and the loss of the forest, the loss of, of that of the beauty, the loss of that as a, as a leisure resource for people to walk in, the loss of habitats for wildlife, the loss of the oxygen that it was creating and the carbon dioxide that it was removing from the atmosphere. None of those things count. The only thing that counts is growth and, and the money that it makes, even though something was destroyed in the process. So <laughs> when I was looking at this, I really wanted to, to think, well, it's all very well to say, okay, we need to question growth. We need to, to stop growth, perhaps, of some things. But if everyone considers growth to be an entirely positive thing, and all our politicians talk about growth as a positive thing, what's the story that we can tell that gives us a more balanced view of growth, that acknowledges that there are good things here, while also saying there's maybe an enough point to growth? <laughs> and so my book, The Economics of Arrival, was about trying to reframe the idea of growth from something that just goes on forever, you know, more and more consumption, more and more money, more and more wealth, to something that is a journey that has a destination. So if you start in poverty, you need growth. But then when you've got enough and you've got abundance, well, then you don't need growth anymore. You've matured beyond growth. You have grown up, actually. And we, we consider growing up and maturing to be a good thing. So why can't we consider the economy to grow up and mature? So it was an attempt to tell that story. I was lucky that I had a friend called Catherine Trebek, who's, she has a doctorate in, in economics. She's much more uh, savvy on these things than I am. And so we were able to collaborate together on that one to try and tell a different story around economics and try and make it as, as robust as we could. So this was a well-researched, quite academic in places uh, kind of book, but really telling a different story. And uh, yeah, I think that was, it was an interesting thing to work on. It took a long time. <laughs> I can imagine yeah, I think it because if you're approaching something that again is the expected that everybody's saying this is the way we should live our lives actually confronting that and well why why does it need to be this way that's quite a big question you're asking and having to then put it into some coherent explanation and why it's not a great thing do you think on the back of writing that co-writing that book that you can see there is definitely another way that the world can work and not sort you know be seeking growth as the be and end all of everything for sure yes and what was really interesting was when we went back and looked at early economics and sort of the emergence of economics as a professional profession and as a discipline growth isn't in there actually it's fairly used as a word that it comes in much later it's post-war the whole idea of growth and what they talked about in the early days was improvement. <laughs> and improvement can be lots of different things. You know, improvement can be about quality rather than about quantity. And then those sorts of ideas around the economy, which are much more holistic views of what progress is, kind of got buried by things like uh, the Great Depression and recovery from the Second World War, where everything was very quantified and they wanted to know that the economy was 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 being kind of reactivated and uh, it all got very obsessed with numbers and 
I think if we were to able, able to go back, even people like Adam Smith, that are sort of darlings of kind of right-wing neoliberal economics, he talked about improvement and, uh, and didn't talk about growth. So it's not a, a radical leftist idea that we're kind of bringing in. We're actually trying to come, go back to a, a more holistic way of understanding things. And I think the kind of alternative that we might be talking about is very much about what makes people's lives worth living, what makes us happy, what, what leads to a rewarding uh, and satisfying life. Let's make those things the centerpiece of, of what we do as countries and what governments seek to do. And that's not kind of some woolly, vague idea. We can, we can look very carefully at what makes people's lives worth living. Economics is only part of that. It is a part of it. Nobody wants to be poor, but it's only part of it. And things like a rewarding work, being part of something which is bigger than yourself, healthy relationships, uh, living in a, 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 a nice place among people who you trust, all of those sorts of things build on people's, uh, build life satisfaction and lead to lives worth living. But it don't really have a great deal to do with economic growth. Yeah, and it's a good point, well made. And the theme that runs through a lot of your work that you touch on through that growth is is that growth for some is important. It depends on where you're at, isn't it? And this yes. great inequality that we have, which is a, a very big topic and one you're obviously not frightened to, to go into in, into great detail because your latest book, which looks at racism and calls out climate change being racist, again, goes into that particular area of inequality. Is that, mm. is, I mean, because of taking on that, I mean, you, you've done another book in between, which we might have time to come back to, but going on to climate change is racist, that particular book. Did that evolve out of your experience or have, having look at this sort of, inequalities through economics how did you decide that that would be a good book to write yeah, it was a very long process of talking myself into it and then back out of it and then back into it again to be honest because i wasn't sure if it was my book to write but at various points i was convinced that it wasn't and that it was better coming from you know a young black activist who could really talk with authority about race and uh, those sorts of issues what it came from basically basically was i was looking at this, uh, I had two maps and I, I was looking at the, uh, a map of climate change impacts and the parts of the world that were going to be most affected and a map of carbon emissions and countries that have contributed the most to the problem. And I put the two side by side in this report that I was writing and I'd never seen them side by side before. And I, I looked at them and it just really struck me that the places that were most responsible for climate change were not going to be affected by it or not first to be affected by it. Isn't it? And the places that were going to suffer most had done very little to contribute to global carbon emissions. And that there was a very clear rich and poor divide there. But there was also a colour divide there. That it was predominantly majority white countries that were contributing the most emissions, certainly historically. And it was mainly people of colour who were going to be suffering the worst effects of climate change. And it kind of jumped right out of the, pa <laughs> of the page, but I'd never heard anyone say that. It had been said, but I hadn't heard it. And in the circles that I moved in, that was not how we talked about climate change. There were I knew people who were interested in, in race and those sorts of issues, but they'd never talked about climate change. So I kind of thought about it for quite a long time, really, a couple of years almost, of thinking, well, is that a racist dynamic? 
it certainly looks like one, but no one's mentioning it. I, I tried to look for a book that could sort of explain it to me, and I couldn't find one. And I didn't do anything with it. And then uh, a couple of years later, I kind of thought about it again. And I thought, I wonder if anyone's written a book about this yet. And they hadn't. And then it occurred to me that maybe I needed to write that book myself. So it was a book that I wanted to read rather than one I wanted to write. And I had to do a huge amount of learning about race and racism because these were not um, things that I was, I'd written about much. They're quite uncomfortable to write about. I had to do a huge amount of learning and listening, most importantly, um, before I really felt like I knew what I wanted to say and how I could say it. And um, yeah, it, it just, at the point that it came out, it was the first book I was aware of that was specifically about climate change and race. There are two or three others now. Um, so it was, I think, breaking new ground. Yeah, it's, it's stirred up plenty of debates, I think. And it's definitely a debate that needs to happen. I too was particularly interested in that that interse intersectional is a very recent word, mm. isn't it? Inter and it's very clumsy and I find it very difficult to think about <laughs> and say, yeah. but it's where these two big things come together, isn't it? Or more than mm. more than two. But as you say, as a white person, it's quite uncomfortable because you're kind of mindful. What is my thoughts before I read this? And I, when I first started looking at the environment, I did not think race was in there at all. I didn't, I didn't even get, even when I started, and as you say, it's not it's not talked about widely, uh, certainly wasn't when I first started looking, as in the case of you. But perhaps the premise is that uh, that we need to be having those conversations to to make these connections. And I wonder why you think it's, although you can see the connection, why is it important that we tell that story of what of, of their connection? Why, why is it an important message to, that needs to be out there? Yeah, well, I think when we look back at history, we can see there have been a number of different times where there were very severe racial injustices that weren't necessarily understood at the time in that way. So slavery, for example. Now, slavery was, it, it started off originally, you know, it was it was criminals and uh, <laughs> people being picked up off the streets and shipped to places like Australia, and it was British people who were often going, and then over time, it kind of morphed into this almost industrial scale um, shipping of people from Africa to the Caribbean and, and to the, the New World of the Americas. And there's a huge racial dynamic to that that legitimized it and justified it and said, well, these people are inferior and it is their rightful place to work for these people. And we recognize that slavery was a racist institution that depended on this horrendous and entirely false hierarchy to keep it going. At the time, that wasn't understood in that way, and people had to explain it and you know, patiently make the case for that, but for equality across races. Colonialism was exactly the same. We can look at the way that Britain and other colonial nations sort of walked around the world and planted their flag and said, we should be in charge of this. We know better. We, our civilization is more advanced. You know, our education, our religion is superior to yours. Um, you will work in service of, of us and you will know your place. And there was a, a huge racial dynamic to all of that as well. And again, that wasn't recognized at the time, although interestingly, the empire always was controversial in Britain, even when it was unfolding, which I didn't really realize until fairly recently, reading some of the history of that. 
And so when, when I think, you know, I reckon a time will come with climate change when we make exactly those same sorts of observations. In, in you know, 20, 30, 40 years time, people are going to look back in climate, at climate change and say, all the emissions came from, from the, initially at least, from Europe and from North America and majority white countries. And the countries that were most devastated by this were in sub-Saharan Africa, in South Asia. There was a huge racial dynamic to that. This, this was a racial injustice and people at the time didn't spot it. And when I think ahead, I think we will think those sorts of things and, and it will be seen in that way. So the hard work now is to explain that and explain what it means if there's a racial injustice. It doesn't mean that all, you know, all white people are racists. It doesn't mean that if you, you know, aren't a climate activist right now, that you are perpetuating a, a, a racial injustice. It's more complicated than that. There's all sorts of nuances to this. But we do, we do need to understand it and we do, do need to explain it and we do need to make sure that we don't add another chapter of racial injustice onto the ones that we already have from history. And I think you say that very clearly, that you're, you're separating the, the racism that is associated with this injustice uh, from an individual being racist to another individual it, it's not yeah. it's not that in, intent where someone is going out deliberately to or, or maybe not deliberately to be racist because it's the structures within which we you know you're rightly saying that those things are happening as a consequence of mass action rather than one person going right very very much so and that, that's the nature of, of structural injustice. And there's lots of different kinds of structural injustice, not just racism, but it's not about it's not about intent. So there's no there's no committee of white people saying, let's organize the disruption of the climate in order to make life difficult for, for people of color. That, that's ridiculous. And and neither is climate change itself able to be racist because it's a it's a process. It's not a it doesn't can't make decisions, it doesn't have prejudices. So we're talking about structural things structures of the global economy, legacies of colonialism, imbalances of power in things like international climate negotiations, all these sorts of things, which already divide along racial lines. And climate change is unfolding in an unjust world and therefore perpetuates and entrenches those injustices. So it is complicated and it's not, it is quite an unfamiliar way to talk about issues of race to some people. So if you're well versed in anti-racism, then you, you know about structural racism, you understand that these things can be embedded in institutions and embedded in history and so on. Among more popular discourse around race, it's almost always to do with prejudice and, and our individual attitudes. And so it is quite difficult to talk about it. I often have to do quite a lot of explaining about the different kinds of racism, you know, individual prejudice, institutional racism, structural racism, and how they're different uh, before we can really get into the conversation. Because otherwise it triggers those reactions, well, are you saying I'm racist? And then it becomes about us and about our own attitudes rather than about these massive global structures, which, which is what I really want to draw attention to. I think, again, you make a really good point about people not being put off because they don't want to think of themselves in a particular way. I would recommend at this point, it's it's a it's a very good book to read. It's excellent in that it's so accessible, your book. Anyone can pick that up and glean the premise of, 
of what is going on and read it without going, oh, it's so uncomfortable that I can't possibly be, I don't want to associate myself with this narrative. It's a good place for someone that hasn't really thought about these issues. And maybe for those that have, I'm just coming at it from my own when I read it. I, I knew some stuff, but it's, it gave me so, so much more of a depth. So it's definitely the right book at the right time, I would say. Obviously, these are really big issues. Lots of people about would say, well, I can't do anything about the economy and I can't do anything about structural racism. What would you say to a person that, that comes at it? It's not, it, it's nothing, it's nothing within my world. Have you got an answer to that perhaps tricky question? <laughs> <laughs> it is a tricky one, isn't it? Because it's not helped by it. And you'll come across this, I'm sure, with previous discussions that so often when we come to the question of what do we do about climate change? What do we do about these big issues? It always comes down to personal actions. Well, I'll, I'll turn off the light switches when I leave a room. <laughs> and climate change will be fixed. Uh, if you're going to be more ambitious, maybe you'll uh, get an electric car or, or, or choose a vegan diet or whatever. But we tend to default. Because we live in an individualist consumer society, we tend to default, default to individuals, to individual rights, individual choices, and we miss all the things that, we, that would make a much bigger impact if we did them together. And so I, I'm very keen to kind of talk more about the things that we do together, the things that we push our governments to do, our local authorities to do, to try and break down some of these injustices and uh, and to address climate change as well. It's the stuff we do together which will be the most the most powerful. Now on things like something as huge as structural injustice, it, it can only be fixed ultimately through things like rebalancing of power in the global economy, through the potentially looking at legacies of colonialism and possibly even reparations and things like that. And it's just very big topics and there isn't a role for individuals necessarily to push that forwards. It's hard to see a way into that. But things that we can all do is to go looking for the wider stories of climate change and always be aware of the, the, the global effects of climate change and how it's affecting people in poorer parts of the world and recognise that how climate change is playing out is experienced in completely different ways in temperate countries and in tropical countries and always seeking to bring those voices into the conversation so that we hear a broader set of stories and this is a real learning point for me was over the years that i've been writing about climate change there are certain stories that will come to me so stories about new technologies not hard to find Stories about businesses that are doing a new thing and they want everyone to know about it. Not hard to find. If you want to know what climate change means in the Caribbean or in sub-Saharan Africa or in South Asia and so on, you will have to go looking for those stories. You have to actively look for them. And so I would want to encourage people to go looking for stories that you haven't heard before. Um, look up what's happening and look up how people are being affected. You know, Who are the activists that aren't famous? Uh, who aren't, you know, getting media attention, but who are doing really good work in far-flung parts of the globe. You know, go looking for those stories and then we'll find ways to help. Yeah, um, that's very good advice. In terms of doing something in, you talked about community and getting getting that information. Do you, I know that you've got involved with community organisations. Have you found that a useful way, not not only to discuss the 
the sort of the research that you're coming into contact the whole time, but to actually get some local action going. Hmm. Yes, well, I, I always want to encourage people to take to move one step up from the individual. So it, it, that might be as far as your family, for example. So rather than saying, what are you going to do? Ask, what is your household going to do? What is your family going to do? And you can multiply your impact. From there, what could your what could your school do? What could your workplace do? Um, uh, if you're a member of a, of, a, of a church or a mosque or something like that, what could your place of worship do and, and your congregation? So look for your spheres of influence, whatever they might be, and see what changes you can deliver in those places. Naturally, progress is much slower <laughs> the further out you go. So, you know, if you're working at, at uh, changing a church, for example, you might spend three or four years talking to people before you've built enough of a community to really feel like it's going to move forwards. Um, if you're a parent at a school gate and you want to see that school move towards being, you know, the eco-school program and raising their ambitions a little bit, it, it will take years of building relationships to do that. So this is a much more long haul approach to things. But it, when you stop and think about the impact of it, if I were to get the school down the road to put solar panels on their roof, a long-term goal, and um, it's many, many, many times larger that their energy goals are many times larger than my own home. The impact would be so much greater, and it would be a, a legacy for that school long after my own kids have left. It would be a teaching point for that school to explain climate change to the, their students. The impact would just be so much greater than than putting solar panels on my own roof, which I've which I've done already. So, when we take the time to build those relationships and and step out and aim at a slightly higher level, the impact is so much greater. It's best not to do it alone because it's easy to burn out when things don't happen immediately. But there's there's always something of a, a sphere of influence that we could be looking to to push things a little bit further. Yeah, that's uh, that comes up time and time again when I have conversations. That that middle ground of community is a good mm. place to get stuff done. That, as you say, is much can be more impactful than individual actions, but accessible to a lot of people. I wonder, in your own life, in your own work, what you have found to be the most quite a positive. I would say, considering your you know bread and butter is looking at quite dark stuff uh, but you're also quite a positive person is that yeah. because you feel that or you're just naturally positive or you can see that there is change on the horizon or you deal in a way that you can see there is some delivery of change what is it that keeps you positive i think it's a combination of things i think i am naturally quite a happy person and then things like you know i have children uh, two children nine and eleven and the world that they live in is, is a, a much simpler and happier place than <laughs> the world of the adults um, and so that keeps me grounded in kind of the here and the everyday that's all helpful and then you're absolutely right it, it, it's being involved in different communities and seeing the difference that it makes is is very encouraging and I'm you know I, <laughs> I've settled in Luton we've been here for a while now as a family and I've got to know all sorts of different people and, and communities from, you know, neighbours to people at the school, uh, people in faith communities, people at the council who are working on climate change. 
and I, I do a bit of storytelling across all of it. I run something called Zero Carbon Looting to try and stitch together all the different people taking action around the town and try to turn it into a coherent narrative of how Luton as a town reaches zero carbon. So I'm surrounded by good stories. People send me all their best stories for me to put in the newsletter, and that's very helpful. I, I get to hear all the best news first. So yeah, all of that is 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 useful and keeps me motivated. And I, I see that there is progress being made, even if it sometimes does feel like baby steps when you're dealing with kind of very big issues. Great. Well, lots of your writing covers lots of different topics. I wonder what's going to be your future have you got something in mind that you there's a burning story you want to tell it in greater depth or do you want to cover just a wide range of topics where does your writing yeah well well, i had a strange experience last year because um i mentioned earlier that i tried lots of different kinds of writing and kind of settled on uh, on the environmental stuff but i also always wanted to write children's books and so i've kind of kept a hand in with that and then last year i published a, a children's book for the first time called Max Counts to a Million. And um, it's, I think probably commercially, it's the most successful thing I've written. Um, it, all the, it was kind of out of the blue in a way, really. But, you know, I saw that in the front window of Waterstones and it, it kind of found its audience. And so I accidentally kind of started a second career for myself as, as a children's author. <laughs> and that comes with opportunities to go into schools and do creative writing workshops and all sorts of interesting things. So. That's probably another thing that keeps me positive, actually, is being able to work on these very serious issues, but also to be able to tell stories that are funny and uh, that are a little bit silly and uh, and to have more than one thing going on. Um, so what part of what I need to write about in the future is is to lead into that a little bit and write some more stories for children. On the, the climate and social justice stuff, there are different questions that have come up in response to the book Climate Change is Racist. And one of them is that when we look at climate justice, we always talk about, about global justice. And when we talk about environmental justice, it's often in an American context because there's quite a well-developed discipline around environmental justice and um, racism towards indigenous people and um, the, the reserves and color lines in US cities and those sorts of things. We don't have an equivalent of that in the UK. And so as I've been talking to different people about the book and giving presentations on it and so on, the question does keep coming up. Well, what about what about us in the UK? Do we have environmental racism in the UK? Do we have environmental justice issues of a different kind? Is actually the biggest environmental justice question in the UK around class rather than around race? And certainly when you look at British history, there's a, a very long and sorry story to be told about how the rich have taken what they needed and, and, and at the expense of the poor in various ways. So I don't know, there's, there are questions there that, uh, that I want to explore a bit more. I don't know, I haven't resolved that yet. <laughs> I'm sure but, it, will, yeah. it will come to you. I think yeah. you cover lots of different topics and big, big stories. And it's, it's lovely that you're able to connect lots of those together. And you're not, you're, you know, you're ambitious in what you look at and investigate so i look forward to everything you're going to write in the future i as i say i would advocate both your blog and your books because they're so accessible i wish you very much uh luck in the future and i will keep my eyes peeled so but thank you for today's time it's been really interesting talking to you thank you it's been fun thank you very much
Accessing reliable and engaging information regarding the environment and associated issues is necessary for us to live in a way that is in harmony with everyone else and everything with whom we share our planet. Jeremy gives us that through his writing of blogs, articles and books. He doesn't shy away from the tricky topics, tackling poverty, the economy and race. So it was great to get a sample of his knowledge in this conversation. For more details on the themes discussed, take a look at the show notes for links to the Earthbound Report and his books. In producing this episode, I'd like to thank Andy Shaw for audio editing, Jeremy Jones for providing the music, and to you for listening. Don't forget you can follow the podcast to get automatic access to each new episode. And it would be lovely if you could rate, review and share it too. It really helps. Until next time, bye for now.